Due to some technical issues from the recording on Sunday, we needed to re-record the first section of the teaching. Please accept our apologies for any confusion that this might bring. Good Father, we gather today not out of vain tradition, but out of a thirst and desire to be conformed to your image. You are the greatest good, the highest happiness, and the most wonderful comforter and sustainer we could ever hope for. As we look into your divine word, we ask that you would help us to recognize that we have been satisfied with false pleasures that are nothing but vapor in comparison to the rock of your steadfast love. We pray that as the song we sang earlier states, that you would help us turn our eyes towards you, help our hearts to yearn for you, and help us to be overcome with the joy of the good news of your gospel truth. Please teach us by your spirit, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have had the experience where something you thought was true was shown to be false, and your entire world was changed in an instant? I remember hearing from my grandmother my entire young life that I had to wait one hour before going into her pool after eating. I still remember the day my sisters told me that wasn't true, and it was just a way for my parents and grandparents to stall me from going into the pool. Now, this is a funny one, a funny example, but sometimes finding out the truth about ourselves or others is hurtful and maybe even painful. It truly recolors all that we believed about our world. What we believe as truth has giant implications in how we act and live within our lives. One of my mentors recently put it this way, People's rebellion is not necessarily a result of being rebellious. They simply follow hard after what they believe to be true. Think about the implications of this statement. What we believe to be true, whether it is true or not, will drive our lives in a given direction. Now, let's take a look at how this plays out in the biblical narrative. The first thing I would like you to write down is that God is good, Satan is evil, and the father of lies. God is good, Satan is evil, and the father of lies. The Bible begins at the beginning. That makes sense. And what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that God is good. It tells us that he is loving, benevolent, generous, and created everything for you and I out of his divine love. Over and over, the creation account of Genesis tells us that God's action of creation and providing is good. Seven times in Genesis 1, you see a word used. It's the word tov, tet holem vav bet. Tov, and it means good. And in seven, biblical numerology says that the number seven is the number of perfection or completion. On the seventh day, God rested because what he was doing had been completed and his completed creation was good. Chapter 2 speaks to the fact that the man being alone is not good. It's the only thing in all of creation that was stated as not good. This did not mean evil, just not complete. It meant it was low tov, no good. So he finishes the work of mankind by bringing Eve into the picture. And in doing so, he looks at mankind and says, this is good. The only thing restricted from man was the tree of the knowledge or the discernment of good and evil. Tov vara. Now, did they need the tree to know good? No, the reality was that God had given them everything that was good. All good had been given to them, and they knew it because they stood in creation that was good, and they knew the God that was good. 
They were in need of nothing to know what good was. The only thing that the tree could bring is the ability to distrust the Lord, to know evil. Look at what is said there in Genesis 2. Now you have to be really purposeful in catching it. In Genesis 2.9 it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, recognize that these two sentences are not totally parallel. God said that he grew everything that was good for food, and he's not stating that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was innately good. Because then in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, he says this, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree, of every tree, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he says in one section that everything he created was good for food to eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not good. Now, my personal opinion is that Satan took the created seed of the tree, perverted it that was placed in the midst of the garden, and God allowed it out of love as the potential for choice. But he rightly said, don't eat of it. Now, Hebrew is a fun language. They don't have the words very or surely. If they want to emphasize something, what they do is they state it twice. For example, to say surely die, the statement in Hebrew is mot tamut. It's using the word mot twice, the word die. And so what you see if you interpret this and change this into the very literal, very wooden statement of what is happening, here's what it looks like. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat, eat. Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no eat. For in the day that you eat of it, die, die. Or death, death. The reality is, is that God was trying to give truth to mankind and they didn't want to hear it. Trusting in Yahweh would look like what in this case? It would be don't eat of the tree. There has to be a reason that he commanded it. He only wants good for us. But then the serpent shows up on the scene. And in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, he speaks and interacts with mankind to place a lie into the midst of mankind. The first thing he did is that he questioned God's word. He asked the question, did God really say? And then her immediate statement is, God said that I can't even eat nor touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God say that? No, he absolutely did not. Satan questioned God's word. She mischaracterized God. He then questioned God's character. His statement is, he doesn't want you to touch it because he's jealous. He knows that when you do eat of it, you will be like him. But this wasn't the truth. It was just not good for them. They were created to be connected to the source of life. And in disobeying God, God knew that they would be broken off from that source of life and provision. Well, what did Eve do? She decided that it was best to trust her feelings, her senses, and her logic. You see, when we accept the lie that God is not good, we then say, who can I trust? And it must be myself. You see, the truth is that God is good. The lie that Satan placed in mankind is that God is not good and therefore cannot be trusted. People's rebellion is not necessarily a result of being rebellious. They simply follow hard after what they believe to be true. In that one moment, Eve and her naivete 
believe the lie rather than the truth and had it reinforced with her feelings and her experiences. And that belief in a lie forever sent all mankind, made in the image of Adam, down a road of division from God that has arrived at you and me. This is why in John 8.44, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And we are commanded in Scripture to watch out for lies. In Hebrews 3.13, it tells us to exhort one another every day to take care of each other, to keep one another from what? From the deceitfulness of sin. Sin that will lie to us and tell us that God is not good. Have you ever wondered why you keep doing the same sin? Well, you were deceived. You were believing the lie. According to Paul in Romans, this is what all of mankind has done. In Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do what? They suppress the truth. In Romans 1.24-25, here's what God says through Paul. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. People's rebellion is not necessarily a result of simply being rebellious. They simply follow hard after what they believe to be true. What lies are you believing that shape the way that you see God, that you see yourself, and that you see others? Is it in line with Scripture, or is it something that's been created in your own mind and heart? or possibly placed there by Satan, or by those that serve him? What lies might you be believing that shape the way you see God, yourself, and others? I want you to contemplate that this week. Because the reality is, is that will drive you in a given direction. In the timeline of our text this morning, Judah was destroyed. A faithful remnant was left in the city of Jerusalem. All the leaders were drug away into captivity in Babylon. The king's throne was left empty, and the temple was left in ruins. And we are now at the point where, after years in captivity, some are returning, but many are staying in Babylon because they have been lulled into a false comfort, a false sense of security, and their allegiance was to a kingdom and a king that is not their own. The situation, their feelings, their senses, and their experience was telling them that God had left them, that he didn't care and that he had been unfaithful to his covenant promise. Their feelings were telling them that they should give in to the false comfort and security found in Babylon, and all that it offered, rather than God. Or at least, that's what they believed. And so now we will see three sections, all marked by the statement, Awaken, in which God will speak truth to the people of Judah. And this conversation begins with God's statement back a little bit in chapter 51, starting in verse 5. This verse right here, he says this, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. In other words, I'm at work, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands, meaning all the nations of the world. They hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Well, The people of Israel were promised by God here that he was going to bring salvation, justice, and righteousness. And so their response is, of course, like many of us, that they want it when? Now. Now. They want it now. 
They believe that if he is good, he will act in their timing and in their way. But the reality is, and the truth of Scripture is this, circumstance and schedule do not determine the truth of God's goodness. Circumstance and schedule do not determine the truth of God's goodness. Let's take a look at Isaiah 51, starting in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you, God, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We often believe, if God acts in my time, in my will, then he is good. If he does not, he must not care. It's a false dilemma. Truth stands regardless of timing or variables or circumstances. Truth is unchangeable. And the truth is that God is good and worthy of our trust regardless of our circumstances, circumstances or our schedule. But what the people of Judah were saying here is they were crying out to God and saying, do something now. You must be asleep or not care, God. Rise up, awake from your slumber and do something. Can't you see the problem we're in? Are you not the God of Exodus? Didn't you act once? Do it again. Bring us back to Jerusalem in victory. You ever feel like that? You ever cry out to God that way and say, God, I know that you're powerful. Why aren't you powerful right now? They were questioning God. This weird comment about Rahab, the piercing of the dragon, these are statements and nicknames for Egypt. He's saying, you played our enemy once, do it again. You see, their immediate situation, their feelings, their experience, their senses, their surroundings, it was speaking to them the lie that God did not care. But what is the truth, dear flock? God is good. Verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Or the son of Adam who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? See, the reality here was that they were fearing everything around them. They weren't looking to the one that is the ultimate authority. But God answers them and he states to them here, he says, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. In other words, don't worry about the people around you or the situations. I'm the one that will protect you and care for you and watch over you. 
You see, God has always been the provider, the comforter of his people. He has done this in spite of their faithlessness and their forgetting of his goodness. Do you ever notice how God will act miraculously in your life and mine? And not five seconds later, if something bad happens, we do what? We doubt his goodness. Raise your hand if you've experienced that. And you ask yourself, why do I think this way? We've believed a lie. In that moment, we have believed the lie that God is not good, and he cut off his goodness because of our circumstances. Rather than submitting to the goodness of the Creator God, we have submitted to the fear of man, the fear of those around us, the fear of our circumstances, the fear of our own voices inside our own head, over and above the amazing nature of his true character. And the reality is that once we recognize his goodness and character, and truly surrender our lives over to him in loyalty and trust, he will gladly become our salvation from the pit. He will become our provider of our needs, not necessarily our wants. And maybe not in the way we want, and maybe not on the schedule we want, but we can be assured that his call, his command, is good. Take a look there at verse 15. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth, and saying to Zion, saying to Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, you are my people. You see, he had always been faithful to Israel even when they didn't trust him. When they refused to trust him to enter the land. You guys remember the story, right? They're all standing there right at the border. And they sent the spies in and they're ready to go. And God says, why are you waiting? And what do they say? It feels like we're grasshoppers in their sight. They're all giants and they're going to kick our tail. And God says, yeah, but, but guys, I'm with you. Remember the whole like Egypt crushing in the Red Sea thing, right? Remember that a few minutes ago? right? But I don't know. It doesn't feel like you're with us, Lord. They're giant, right? Only two. Caleb and Joshua stood up and said, no, the Lord is with us. So what did God do? He said, oh, by your own choices, you're going to wander in the wilderness. I'm not going to force you into my blessing. I'm going to give you over to what you believe to be true. So does he boot them out of the promised land and say, good luck to you? No, not at all. When they refused to trust him to enter the land, he allowed them to turn and walk into the wilderness by their own choices. But he still didn't leave them. He provided food and shoes, the bare necessities for them. Yet what did they proclaim for not living in the promised land? Oh God, why have you left us? Here's what Scripture says. This is Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 6. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 6. God said, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not 
live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's where we get our life and our sustenance. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. The Bible is clear that he disciplines those that he loves. Guys, if you are sinning and you are not under the discipline of God, you should be freaking out because he has given you so far over to your sin. He disciplines those who he loves. Through suffering, we learn obedience just as Jesus did. They believe their circumstances showed God not to be good, but their circumstances were a result of their own actions of faithlessness. His faithfulness was shown by walking through it with them, even in their disobedience. And so God now is going to reverse their statement upon them and speak to them. Take a look at Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. God reverses their statement on them and says, I am not the one sleeping. You need to wake up. Don't you realize that your constant distrust of me and walking in the midst of the lie that your religion will save you has brought destruction on yourself? This section is one giant question from God. How's it going for you? How's that working out? Do you want to persist in your lie, or do you want to finally step in my truth on the path back to righteousness? Ultimately, he asks, who do you want to comfort you, the deceitfulness of sin or the truth of Christ? You see, the truth was they could look at the dying bodies around them, of their own children even, and they had one of two ways they could place blame. They could either place it on God for his lack of action or on themselves for their lack of zealous allegiance to the God they were called to serve. Because of God's deep, deep, undying love for his people, he was not going to rescue them from the lie they believed because he knew that unless they repented from that lie and turned to embrace the truth that God is good and desires to save them, they would just keep making the same mistakes, hardening their hearts, digging deeper the hole that they were in, and further going against God's loving discipline. They needed to have the repentance. He wasn't going to force it on them. So his solution in discipline Loving discipline was to give them over to the lie they had believed so that they might be broken and turned to him. Look at verse 21. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. What are they drunk with? The deceitfulness of sin. 
Thus says your Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the streets for them to pass over. Isaiah is tucking away within this section a hidden gem of truth. Do you remember the third servant song from last week? The servant whom we know to be Jesus gave us a glimpse of how he was going to bring salvation and save Israel. Here's what he said in Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He gave his sinless back for us. What is it that the author says here? To those who've been given over to their sin, their backs will be run over by their oppressors like the streets for them to pass over. Isaiah uses the linguistic tool of metaphor here to give us this beautiful picture. You see, the truth is that you will either give yourself over to the lie that God can't be trusted so that the world will beat and abuse you as a tormentor riding over the top of your back. Or you will accept the fact that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be whipped and beaten and bruised across his sinless back so that you could know the truth that God loves you. He has never left you nor forsaken you. God is good. You see, when the world around you tells you that God has given up, he fights back with the truth. Look at Isaiah 52.1. He continues his command. Awake, awake, put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments, O Zion, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. In spite of our going after other gods and, and other evil that we thought would bring us comfort, God promised from the beginning of his word, from the beginning of the sin of man that he would redeem us. He has taken us from our faithlessness and clothed us, the church, in beautiful bridal garments, created us to be the new Jerusalem and has called us to rise from our enslavement to the lie that we have believed and the shame that it brings. And he can call us to this because he has purchased us back, not with money, but with the priceless blood of his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what, I, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. In other words, he's mischaracterized. Therefore, my people shall know my name. And remember, name is so heavily attached to character. They will know that I am good. 
Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. God will eventually show the fullness of his glory and that he will destroy the nothingness of evil and the lie that we have believed. We have each followed hard after the lie that God does not care at one point or another, that he is asleep and that he's powerless. At many times and in many ways, we have all believed this lie because our experiences, our feelings, our senses have told us unequivocally that God is not good and cannot be trusted. All the while, he has been quietly at work, bringing to pass the most amazing true story that has ever been recorded, showing us in the only way possible that his love is beyond comparison and deeper than anyone or anything we could ever experience or know in this life. Nothing can compare. The lie of sin that surrounds us has left us with no hope, the world burning down around us with injustice, but just when it seems most hopeless, just when we think there is no way that we can turn this around or that God can have enough power to act. The author of Isaiah shows us off in the distance a messenger, one who brings with him great tidings of good news from a foreign kingdom. And it's good news that he has given to you and to me to declare with our lives. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Here's the truth, dear people. Contrary to the lies that surround us, our God reigns and he will return. Contrary to the lies that surround us, and I would even add that are within us, our God reigns and he will return. If there's anything that I have said this morning, that deserves an amen. Amen? This poem that seems somewhat out of place is actually placed perfectly. The watchmen on the walls of the destroyed Jerusalem in the midst of chaos look off in the distance. And what they see is a man that brings with him good news that not only are they not lost and destroyed forever, but that the throne that was left vacant will be filled, not by a mere man, but by God himself. The God that they disobeyed in the wilderness. The God that they turned aside when they asked for a king. The God who they mischaracterized when he disciplined them. This same God was going to bring victory, comfort, redemption, salvation, and shalom back to the city of Shalom, Jerusalem. And in doing so, all the world would know that Yahweh alone, the God of the Jews, is truly the creator God. There is no other God because he alone has acted. 
how will he do this? Next week, we will step into Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the last song of the servant, the suffering servant. And it will speak to us in picturesque terms the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But even here, tucked away, when we look at the languages behind this statement, we see an amazing statement. You see, here is the text that we have before us in Isaiah 52, 7 through 8. And when we look behind it, we see this word good, or this phrase good news twice. Now, good news, the words in the Hebrew, they were translated into the Greek in something called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And so here's how those words would have looked. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings euangelion, who publishes peace, who brings euangelion of happiness. Any of you who know a little bit of Greek know that this is the word that we translate into the English. Euangelion means gospel. The feet of him who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings gospel of happiness. But the cool part is, is it doesn't end there. That word happiness in the Hebrew is actually not happiness. I really, I did a ton of searching and I cannot figure out why they have it as happiness. You know what the word in the Hebrew is? Tov. They bring the gospel that God is good. That word publishes can also be translated proclaims. And the word in Hebrew for salvation is Yeshua. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who, of him who brings the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings the gospel that God is good because he proclaims Jesus, Yeshua, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And what is the result of seeing this amazing gospel, hearing it, Look at Isaiah 52.9. Break forth together into singing. Guys, this is what we will do after we study this text. We will break forth into singing. Why? Because it's always what we do. No, because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been washed over us. And no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our schedule, we stand here today witnessing to the world that God is good with all the injustice that surrounds us and the hurt and the anger and the hatred inside of us, God is still good. He's still seated upon the throne and nothing can remove him. And when we recognize that, we break forth together into singing, not in apathetic, I hope nobody hears me, off-key worship, but into singing because we praise him that he is good. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation. That word in Hebrew is Yeshua of our God. You see, the gospel is that God did bear his holy arm. His power was shown forth by voluntarily sending his son, Yeshua, Jesus, to die as a sacrifice, 
to redeem us without money. In doing so, he conquered death and the deceitfulness of sin. In his death and resurrection, Jesus was crowned as king of all, showing us once and for all that God is good. And we can therefore trust his word to be true and good. Every person here that declares to know God's salvation, here is the message that you have been entrusted with, that you must take to your friends, your families, your neighbors, and your co-workers. Here is the truth of the gospel. Write this down. Tattoo it on your arms. Put it on your mirror and read it every morning. This is the gospel message. God is good. We believe and live the lie that he is not. Jesus was sent. He died on our behalf and was resurrected. Because of this, he reigns as king over the entire universe. He will return for us one day. And this doesn't just deserve, it demands a response that we live according to this truth. Tattoo that on your arms. That is the gospel. You want to make it simpler? I know I need simple to remember. Here's the simplest form of the gospel. God is good because Jesus is Lord and Savior. There is no gospel without Jesus. There is no gospel without him being our king, our Lord. And there is no gospel if he had not saved us. And lastly, if we do not live it, then we never believed it in the first place. And so this is the final two verses of our text. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Here's the last thing I want you to write down. I've got some questions after this, but this is the last title I want you to write down. Our proper response to the gospel is to leave the lie and embrace the truth with our lives. Our proper response to the gospel is to leave the lie and embrace the truth with our lives. How many in you here have moved from another state at one point in their life? You've moved states. Anybody? Okay. Those same people, do you still have a supply shed back in that other state that you go back and visit every once in a while? Raise your hand if you still do. 
Okay, two people just broke my metaphor. Way to go, guys. I knew somebody would. But here's the reality, guys. When you move, what do you do? You move. Those Jews who had been dragged, kicking and screaming into exile in Babylon now had been handed the opportunity to go back, to leave, and to go back to Judah to worship their God. But they had become so comatose with their lives that they had adapted to the kingdom of Babylon. And even though they identified as God's people, they had become comfortable in the kingdom of the world. They said, we are God's people, but eh, we kind of like it here in Babylon. Why leave their comfort? You see, they believed in a faux prosperity gospel that because they were in comfort, they obviously were operating in God's will. Sounds like America. But that's not the truth. They were enslaved to their lives of excess and prosperity. And so God's command to them was, depart. And those who depart with full trust in the Lord will not do so in haste, as in the Exodus. They will not do so with the protection of man, as with Ezra. But they shall go with the God of Israel as their strength and their trust. For those of you who know that God does not reign in your life. You have been convicted today of that. The gospel has been preached to you. The word of God has penetrated your heart. And it demands a decision today. Not tomorrow, not next week. Will you continue to walk in the lie of your own truth? Or today, will you bend the knee to the benevolent God and cry out and proclaim God is good because Jesus is Lord and Savior. Today is the day to finally submit your life not to the lie of religion, not to the lie of your feelings, but to the truth of God's reign. For those of you that do proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior today, God has called you and me to leave the lies that we have believed. The false reality of our false comfort and our vain worship. And to embrace the truth that we need to begin walking back to Jerusalem. When you start in Babylon and you turn, it takes a while to get back to Jerusalem. Don't give up. Keep enduring and keep walking. Following the truth that God is good and we can trust in him that all he calls us to is good and true. And so this morning, I want to leave you with three questions. Here's the first. Do I trust that God is good because Jesus is Lord and Savior? That's the gospel question. For those of you that are wrestling with this question right now, I'll be standing in the back. David and Christy will be standing in the back. I don't know if Patrick's in here. We will be back there to talk with you. Come back and talk with us. Let us help you understand what it is to walk as a Christian. Let us connect you with people to help disciple you. Secondly, if you are one of those people that does not believe that God is good, what lies are you believing? What lies are you believing about God, about yourself, and about other people? See, Jesus came to bring the truth that we can trust God and rest in his protection, that he loves us, therefore we are lovable. Not because we're good enough, gosh darn it, but because love is in the eyes of the beholder. 
And even in the days where my kids are their worst, I still love them dearly, just as the Father loves me. And that gives us the comfort and protection to then love others without fear of harm. Harm may come, but God's word, God's truth, God's comfort will stand firm. The church that understands that can truly go forth into the world and preach by their love one for another that they are Jesus' disciples. If you do believe that God is good, what actions should you take so that your life reflects this truth? In other words, what changes in your worldview, your relationships, how you spend your time, how you use your talents and giftings and energy, and what you spend your money on? What changes need to be made in those areas to proclaim with your actions that Jesus is Lord and Savior? I'll take the most basic material one. I'd really like to tithe, Hans, but it's just so tight. Have you reduced all of your expenses down? Have you cut off Spotify? Have you cut off Netflix? Have you stopped going out and buying $5 coffees every morning? Have you chosen to move into a smaller apartment, a smaller house with a lower cost? My wife and I made a quarter of a million dollars together in the IT industry. We gave all of that up to come down and start this church. And we made changes in our lives so that we give almost twice as much more now of our income than we did then. Make the hard choices and start at the foundation. Money's just an example. How about your time? What do you need to cut out of your overly busy schedule to make family worship a priority? How about your relationships? What relationships that suck the life out of you do you need to cut off in order to pursue Jesus? What relationships of Christians that are apathetic in their walk need to be stopped or dealt with or spoken the truth in love so that your children are not learning from those relationships that a Christian can be apathetic? Start at the base of your life, not just the what quick, easy, comfortable decision can I make in order to walk with Jesus? For many of us, this is not a quick fix, but a beginning of a process in which we begin at that foundation of our life in these areas, and we take action to bring our whole lives into submission to Christ. Will you take the time this week, sit down and ponder these questions, plan out practical changes to answer them, and then act upon them? My prayer for you and for me is that we would do that this week that we would stop making excuses. We would ask ourselves, do I trust that God is good because Jesus is Lord and Savior? And is my life preaching to the world around me that this is truth? Now before we step into worship, I want to finish with a short video from our friends at the Bible Project that speaks about the text from today. Because I believe they do such a great job of capturing all that we have discussed today. It's a short video, less than five minutes, and at the end of it, we're going to stand and we're going to state the Apostles' Creed together. <laughs> 